This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are welcoming you to another week in our study of the Gospel of Mark. This is week 10, and we are looking at the mission of Jesus. We spent the first eight weeks looking at what Mark was telling us about who Jesus was, and now we're looking at what Jesus did to understand his mission, to understand what part of that, you know, we should have. Um, And I do think that it's been, the first couple of weeks have been very interesting, and I think chapter 10 has a lot of good stuff in it also, Sam. Mm -hmm, I agree. I agree. It's a good hodgepodge. There's a smorgasbord of different things in here. Some of them are things that we've talked about not that long ago when we were when when we were covering the uh, parables and stuff like that we mm-hmm. went through the rich young man for example well mm-hmm. he he's in here again yeah uh, still makes a bad choice <laughs> no that's right nothing changed there so these you know it's a, it's a it, there'll be some familiar stuff in this chapter that's what i'm saying yeah. so well let's start right away with the uh, uh chapter 10 verse 1 which interestingly in my english standard version is is labeled with a little title, the little titles they give you, subject titles, teaching about divorce. I'm going to suggest to you that this passage genuinely isn't teaching about divorce. This is something else entirely. Not that it doesn't involve divorce, but this is not Jesus teaching about divorce. Verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Number one thing, if you want to talk about the, the number one mission of Jesus, was teaching people. He was always, always teaching. Yeah, he's he's teaching them the word. He's teaching them what to expect. You yeah. know that that God is a God of grace and mercy, and you know he, the word was being lifted high. Yep. So verse two, and our favorite guys and Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I think that that is, it's, it's like watching a bullfighter work. You know, it's like the, the bull comes charging at him and all of a sudden the Pharisees realize that a red cape is flipped over their eyes and they don't know where <laughs> Jesus is anymore. Um, it's a brilliant answer because the first thing he does is he turns it around, he sets them, the, sets them on the back foot by asking them, Hey, Moses wrote the law. What did Moses command you? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so they're coming to him. And the whole thing is is trying – they're always coming to him with questions because they want to whittle away at his following and to prove to people that he's somebody that they shouldn't follow and divide you know, his followers into camps. And so they come and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And as we'll talk about in a minute – Really, really, really a high-charged question in first-century Israel. And so Jesus turns it back on him and is like, okay, you're, you're the teacher of the law. You're, you claim to be the experts. What did Moses command you? And it's interesting that he says, what did Moses command you? And they responded, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so Immediately, they, they don't respond with what Moses is commanding. They come back with what Moses allowed because the command surrounding marriage is much different than what man can just get away with. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a way different question, and Jesus is kind of challenging them on a lot of that. Well, there, And you were telling me there's two schools of thought on that, too. There were two very influential rabbis that had differing mm-hmm. opinions on this certificate mm-hmm. of divorcement because – it said that if the woman, if the wife displeased her husband, that mm-hmm. the husband could write her this certificate of divorce. And interpreting what does that mean, displease your husband, uh, there were two different views, right? Yeah. So if you go, what where this comes from is Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, and it says that if she has found no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he can write her a certificate of divorce. And so then the question becomes, and this was the the big debate that was raging in Jesus' day, is, okay, he's she's lost favor in his eyes because of some indecency. And so then the question is, what does that mean? What is the indecency? And so you had two schools of thought, and one of the rabbis that was famous that came before Jesus was a guy named Shammai. And Shammai held the traditional view that was, you know, the indecency means what it says. Indecency, the root of that Hebrew word, literally means nakedness or genitals. So it has this kind of connotation that it's sexual, right? That she's done something impure, she's committed adultery, that that is the reason why she's lost favor. And in that situation, the husband could issue a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, then you had this other school called the Hillel school that came along and they said, no, 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 no. It's she's lost favor in his eyes because she's being indecent, not measuring up to his standards of what a wife should be. And that means, you know, that could be anything from, you know, she talks to other men in the street or, you know, she's not a good cook or she wears clothes that he doesn't like or, you know what, she's let herself go or whatever. Really, really awful awful view of marriage but it basically was lifting up this idea that a man can divorce a woman and 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 send her away with no rights no property rights back then no, you know very few avenues by which she can take care of herself in that culture she's not going to be desirable for others to marry it would have put her in a really bad position and so women were particularly vulnerable because of this crisis and here's the thing the halal school was growing in popularity. It was it was probably the popular position of that day. And you got to imagine this is wild that in a culture that lifts up the Pharisees who are so much about the rules on this issue, which is really about justice and mercy and covenantal faithfulness, they're like, eh, send her away. You know, and they take the easy way out, this Hallel branch of thought 
that treats women as if they're essentially property that can be discarded and such a low, disgusting, gross view of marriage. And so what they're doing when they come to Jesus is they're like, okay, you've got this debate raging. And they come and say, okay, Jesus, what are you going to say to us? Who are you going to make angry <laughs> is essentially what they're wanting to do. Yeah. Um, it shows you that in a society that is so ragingly legalistic, where where it's you know all about law and you know parsing everything, when it comes to loving your wife and your husband and understanding marriage, they had such a hollow, cold, awful view of what marriage really meant. Yeah. So the reason why I was saying that this really didn't have anything to do with divorce was the fact that it says the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked this question. The Pharisees did not need, there's in no way did they need to know what the law said about divorce. They knew it, and they knew that Jesus knew it. What they were trying to do was to get him to say something that would get him in trouble. Now, there were about 897 Herods that ruled. <laughs> Seems that way, doesn't it? It there, really does. There were bunches of Herods that ruled over the different this is like regions the of Jerusalem. Foreman family. It George is. one, George two, George. It two. is. <laughs> it is. So one of those Herods, a guy named Herod Antipas, he had married a woman named Herodias, who had been married previously to his uh, half brother, and who was also named Herod. See where we're getting here? They're all Herods. And, Philip, actually. Oh. <laughs> He's, he must have been the oddball of the family. So, so he was the one not named Herod? Correct, which which is quite the message from your dad. Like, okay, here's Herod Archelaus, and here's Herod Antipas, and there's Philip. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a Herod. How about that? So she was married to the one guy not named Herod. Everybody else was. Uh, and so she and Herod both sort of casually divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other. And John the Baptist was asked to give his approval to this. And he did not. Because he was not in favor of this easy divorce thing. And as a result of that, Herod Antipas had John arrested. And then as the story went on, um, Herodias, nefariously working through her daughter Salome, managed to sort of trick Herod Antipas to do something, to promise something that then they could use to leverage so that he was forced to uh, behead John the Baptist. So mm -hmm. that's what had happened, but the whole ball started rolling because he wouldn't approve of their marriage. Well, Jesus had returned to Jewish territory here. He was, you know, where he was was, 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 was you were telling me it was Herod Archelaus, right? That well, rules this? Yes, correct. So he's in Herod Archelaus's territory, um, but word travels fast between the Herods. They had like mm -hmm. some kind of telep telepathic link going on, and so what the Pharisees are hoping he will do is say something that they can put it out on you know first century Twitter. Uh, they could tweet over to uh, the uh, to, Herod, to Herod and say, "Here's what Jesus just said. He doesn't mm -hmm. approve of your marriage either." Um, they were looking to get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. This wasn't 
you know, what do you, what, what's the law on marriage? It was, will you say something that will get you in trouble? Mm-hmm. And I think that Jesus is just brilliant here because he <laughs> turns it right around. He comes back and he goes, well, what did Moses command you? Moses was their authority. Moses wrote the law. He's like, tell me what Moses said. So that it was them that had to state the law, not him. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely crushes them with right. his answer. Yeah. Like, and they notice that they're saying, what did Moses command you? Well, Moses allowed, and they're talking about Moses. And when he, when he turns the question to them, notice what he says. He doesn't say because of their, you know, Moses lived 1,500 years before Jesus, right? He doesn't say, well, because of their hardness of heart, he points at them and says, because of your. It's almost like you can imagine that he's looking at them and he's like, because of your hardness of heart, because you come at the law with only a concern for what you have to do, bare minimum. You're not worried about other people's hearts. You're not worried about covenantal love. You're just only concerned with yourself. And he looks at them and says, because of your hardness of heart. And when you hear that expression, hardness of heart, what does your mind immediately go to in the Bible? You think of whose heart is hardened all the time. Well, you go back to Pharaoh and the days of Moses, who was this ruler who had power and authority, and he used his leadership of Egypt to drive his subjects into the dirt to abuse them. And what he's saying is, you're worried about the the words of Moses, but I'm telling you, your heart is absolutely every bit as hard as Pharaoh. You drive people into the dirt. You don't care about humanity. And he's he's opening this with a stab at the heart. You know, your heart is hard. Yeah, it's it's gross. It's you're you're like Pharaoh. I mean, yeah. it's it's drawing your mind there. Well, I've always believed too that the hardness of heart was a reference to. What the husband was likely to do if he was not allowed to write that certificate of divorce and send her away peacefully, he would just begin to mistreat her, possibly even kill her. Mm-hmm. And uh, because women just did not have rights in ancient mm-hmm. Israel or anywhere in the ancient world. Um, well, I say anywhere. There were, there were certainly places that they did, but very few. It was very unusual. Yeah. You had to have nobility to be treated well as a woman. I'll say that. Correct. Correct. Um, and so this was something that was done for the protection of the women. You know, they mm-hmm. say, how could God be so heartless to women? God was trying to save their lives because he knew how hard the hearts were of these sinful people. And they were not going to be stopped in doing what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Which is what he did. You know, like you look at what he does with the Israelites, and he, God comes there, and initially he doesn't say to, to Pharaoh, like, he just asks permission for them to go worship, and Pharaoh's hardened heart won't let him, and so God eventually is going to rip the Israelites out of the circumstance where they are being abused by someone who is not loving them. Um, you know, it's interesting how that works. Yeah. Like, th- this is. This is not asking a lot. It's asking you to be tender-hearted toward your wife. And the the word there, it's interesting in Greek is sclerocardia. And it's where we get the English words like arteriosclerosis. It's a hardening of your arteries and it's a hardening of things and this is literally sclerocardia, the hardening of the heart. It means you're, it's like your heart is becoming stone. Mm. So Jesus then goes on to give them the teaching about marriage, which is, a, again, 
I think it's interesting because Jesus doesn't answer their question. You know, Jesus says, you know, he doesn't he doesn't contravene the law or anything like that. He he does say why the law was that way, and then he goes on to say, here's the teaching from Scripture. Do with that what you will. And the Pharisees at that point were utterly defeated. Mm-hmm. It was a brilliant thing. Yeah, so, so what they're doing, I mean, they're coming in saying, well, the man is the head of the household, and he should be the one who determines whether his wife is this or that or the other. And Jesus comes in and says, okay, so let, let me get this straight. You think that marriage is an institution, that your particular marriage is an institution that you're in charge of? Oh, really? Well, let's go back to the Bible, because the Bible says that God is the one who has ordained marriage. He's the one who made them male and female. He is the one who has put them together. You think you're in charge of this institution? You're think, you think your desires trump God's desires? And he's talking to this re- these religious leaders who are so ridiculous and, and how cold they are, and he's challenging them to say, hold on a minute, like... I thought you believed the Bible because the Bible believes that God is the one who gave you the marriage, that God is the one who ordained you and you to come together as one flesh. And now you're saying you're in the driver's seat because you're the man? Oh, I get it. You don't believe the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. Yeah, for just a second there, I thought that you had gotten up and were walking out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of this. So <clears throat> these people like really like the Pharisees would have been an absolutely exhausting group of people to deal with. Yep. You know, I can I as a pastor I can take the unbelievers, I can take the people who come and you know have all kinds of kooky thoughts. It's the people who are in the church that are the nitpickers and the the people who are constantly trying to tear down. It it drives you crazy. Right. Thankfully we don't have that at Rio, but I I I see it enough in the world. Right. To where you're like, man, you're like, really? There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no kindness behind it. And and Jesus is just taking them to task for making everything about them and their desires mm-hmm. and ignoring that God is the one who loves marriage. That, that the prophet Malachi, and the prophet Malachi, God says, I hate divorce. I hate when love grows cold. I hate when hearts get hardened. I'm the one who ordains this institution. Therefore, if you're not going to do it for one another, do it for me. You know, do it out of worship. Love love your husband, love your wife because you love me and see what that does to your relationship. Love each other out of worship. I mean, that's where Jesus is coming from. He turns he turns this person-to-person relationship, and he says, okay, well, okay, I hear where you're talking about divorce and there's hardness of heart and all that. Okay. Let's turn it to worship. Remember who who started this. God is the one who desires this. Start there. Yeah. Love them because you love God. Right. Start there. See what that does to your heart. And they're just they miss it. So verse ten uh, says, "In and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her.'" And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What? First of all, <laughs> first of all, first of all, I'm going to say that we could have an entire podcast episode, a topical episode, just on divorce, mm-hmm. on when the Bible says that divorce is permissible, 
um, and you know all the gray areas that have popped up over the years, and um, you know how think how it's interpreted by churches, and I think it's I think it may be an interesting topic someday. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that today because we only have a couple hours here. We don't want to be too crazy. <laughs> but um, this situation here, what's notable about this to me, Sam, is that what it says in verse twelve, and if she divorces her husband mm-hmm. and marries another. Well, at the time of Jesus, if I'm not mistaken, a Jewish woman could not divorce her husband. Only the husband could divorce her. Yeah, is that, so, is that, so that's, is that true? Can societally, yeah. culturally, yeah. that's essentially the truth. Okay. Now, in the scriptures, there's there's room for that. But this had been so overrun. I mean, you get the idea based on the Hillel Shammai argument and who, you know, when a man could send his wife away, uh, which was in the first century, that was tremendously devastating for a woman. But they weren't, notice they're not arguing when can the woman send the husband away because that just didn't happen. The woman was so vulnerable in those days that she didn't dare send the husband away. You know, she she was almost entirely reliant upon a husband, you know, to to be a widow, to to be a divorcee, to have had previous husbands made you a pariah in that society. It made people think, oh, you must be cursed or something. And plus, then you had all the added weight and stresses of wondering how in the world you were going to care for yourself, uh, how you were going to make ends meet, where you were going to get food, because you didn't get 50% of the property back then. Right. The woman was sent away, and the lands and all of the industry and everything else stayed in the line of the man. And so it wasn't even practical. So when Jesus brings that in and say, not only does the man have a right to divorce the husband in cases of adultery, but the woman has the right to initiate divorce against her husband if he commits adultery. That would have been, like, shocking. And they wouldn't have even had ears to hear that. It would have been like, oh, wait, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, it was that culturally just, it didn't happen. Yeah. And it's another example, I think, of Jesus articulating the need of of rights for women. You know, he was, you know, he was somebody who had women in and around his disciples and his, his group that he was teaching all the time. Um, he very much valued the women who followed him. Mm-hmm. And that was really unusual in that time. Women were treated very much like property. And Jesus treated them like they were his daughters, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, when, whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the things, and it's really helpful, actually, even even for me, is when you get married, it's not just the two of you coming together, but there's, there's a third person in your marriage, and it's the Lord, and, and he's the one who does the convicting. He's the one who's in charge of changing your spouse. He's the one who loves you both more than you love one another, and, and he is the head of your household. His His word leads, his example leads, His the need for grace and mercy and dignity and the way you lift each other up and your patience. Like, he is the head of your household. When you come into a marriage, you're not just covenanting person to person saying, I will be with you, you know, through sickness and health and all that stuff. But the Lord comes in there, and and he is the one who steers the home. He is the one who who brings dignity. And so when we think about divorce, you know, so often we, we see the Lord as detached from this. 
But when you entered into marriage, if you entered into a Christian marriage, you didn't just make a promise to your spouse. You made a promise to your spouse and to the Lord to, mm-hmm. to lead and to guide. And, you know, you see in Jesus's argument here, he's like, hey, God is the one who's done this. God is, God is the one who's made two into one flesh. This is his purpose. This is his design. This is his desire. And so when we willy-nilly say, you know what, I'm going to rip this apart because of my human desires, we violate our covenant, not just with that person, but with God. And you know, now he's saying if you go forward and you marry someone else, like God's, your covenant with God is not over. You may have gotten a legal document from the courthouse that says you're divorced, but God doesn't recognize the will of the courthouse unless you have met biblical standards for divorce. You're still married to your spouse in the eyes of God. So if you go out and marry another person in the eyes of God, it's like you're a bigamist. You're committing adultery. And, you know, the Lord takes marriage really seriously, and it's meant to be a really beautiful institution um, if it's centered around a gospel kind of grace uh, where, where that's the heart of how you love one another. Yeah, and and I know that everybody has a different situation and a different story to tell. And I've heard over the years as an elder in the church, I've heard some horrific stories of just how can two how can somebody who once claimed to love someone else treat them this way? Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know. Um, and I I it saddens me uh, because I think about my own marriage. Um, and I think about, you know, my marriage where, you know, when we got married, for instance, it was just, it wasn't even a question of, are we going to go to church every Sunday? It was like, well, now we've got to find a church that we can attend together. Cause she was mm-hmm. going to one church. I was going to a different church. We wanted to try to find one that we felt comfortable in together. And so we started visiting churches, but there was no question in our mind that on Sunday you went to church because we wanted to be worshiping with other believers in God's family and you know, when we're sitting around home and we're talking about things, we're, we're also talking about, you know, how, you know, what does the scripture say? What does God want us to do? Let's pray. Let's see what God wants us to do. Um, and just in the years, how we've supported each other in ministry, you know, when she's been going to do some teaching or I've been going to do some teaching, um, I talk, talk the whole thing through with her before I actually sit down and start writing. And if she says, I'm like, okay, where did I go wrong? <laughs> um, and and then there's just the unbelievable, you know, kindness and mercy that she has shown to me, especially through this last stage, these last few months where I've been pretty much an invalid, you know, just in a chair, can't move. And um, I'm telling you, man, if marriage has the Lord at the center of it, and there have been times, we went through our rough times, Sam, I'm not telling you we didn't. We went through our rough times. We spent some time in marriage counseling, but there was not a point where we ever said, maybe we should get divorced. Um, because we believed that if we pursued Jesus, each of us as individuals, that that was going to be something that in a sort of triangle type thing would bring us closer to each other as we got closer to him. And that's been the truth over our mm-hmm. 36 years of marriage. Um, and I could I cannot imagine living my life without my wife mm-hmm. the, I feel this, the same way yeah it's just she's she's everything to me you know 
Um, you know, when uh, we forget that when when the Bible comes and gives us the institution of marriage right out of the gates, you know, God doesn't he doesn't give us the gospel and say, "Hey, you know what? The gospel's kind of like marriage." Like, no, it's the other way around. God gives the institution of marriage because it's the type of covenant, it's the type of institution that most closely is supposed to reflect the kind of love that he has for his people. And and what does that love look like? Well, I mean, you think about the way that Jesus loves his people, and he's a sanctuary for us. He doesn't come and say, you know, how are you performing? What are your circumstances? You know, how, how are you doing? Are you worthy of my love this week? No, the the beautiful thing about Christ's love for us is we get to go to him with all of our scars and all of our shames and all of our shortcomings and everything else, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one sanctuary in a broken world where we can go and stand before him with all of that. And there's, you know, there's he will never forsake us. He will never send us away. And marriage is supposed to be a picture of that where Laura can fail. Laura can have weak moments. Laura can have moments where she's not ideal and perfect. And yet she knows that I am her sanctuary, Mm -hmm. that that she can be broken with me, and I can be broken with her. And we can urge one another on and be gracious and point each other to Christ and just continually love each other. It's this one place in the world where you can be totally known and be loved. That's what marriage is supposed to be, but you can only do that if you have a gospel-centric understanding of what marriage is, that it's that it's not about, hey, what can I get from this person? But you're you're dying together, you know, and it's a dying to self. You're humbling yourself and you're always eager to make the other person feel treasured and lifted up and you're humbling yourself and giving away your own needs and your own expectations for the sake of the other person. And when both people are doing that, and again, <laughs> it's most days that you know you, one's battling or the other's battling with that. But when you're both trying to be Jesus to one another, you know, in some sense, you're trying to become like Christ to one another and loving like he loves, man, marriage is an unbelievable, beautiful place. And it makes it so much easier to go through this world when you're walking through it with somebody that you absolutely know is pledged and committed to love you through it all and divorce comes and says eh maybe not yeah you know i'll love you until i reach this point where you know what you're just not worth it anymore Mm. and it's a devastating thing that's why god hates it you know you look at jesus and what he endured if anybody was ever entitled to a divorce (laughs) i mean it was god himself who saw his bride do unspeakable cruelties to him that yeah. he would never expect one of his people to put up with. Yeah. And yet there's nothing that could rip his love or his covenant away from his people. And he's like, man, that's what I want for you. That's what I want you to experience in this world. I, I know you're broken, and I know that you're not going to do it perfectly. But in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, like chase after that because it's something beautiful that's really worth it. And when people cash in, the the heartbreak and the the pain and the scars and everything else that come out of it, um, is it's crushing. It's crushing to the people involved. It's and it's something that the Lord he really hates in a way that he doesn't like to see his people suffer. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot more fun 
to talk about how beautiful marriage can be when done right than mm-hmm. it is to talk about under what circumstances can it be broken apart. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy the former conversation much more <laughs> than the latter. Me too. You know, um, I'll add this one more thing and then we'll move on to uh, the uh, children here. But years ago, uh, when Scott Carson was, uh, he had proposed to Sarah Morris and they were going to get married. Um, we were in the attic at church and he knew that I'd been married a long time. And he goes, so tell me what's the secret? You know, what's the secret to being married, being married a long time? And my first answer was a joke. My first answer was, you just have to say you're right all the time. <laughs> um, and so he thought that was funny, but then he goes, no, really, what, what, what would you say if you wanted to give somebody advice? What would you say? And I thought, I said, I've never really thought about it before. Let me think about it for a minute. And I came and I told him three things. I said, number one, marriage is not 50-50. Divorce is 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. Both people give all they have all the time. When a marriage breaks up, that's when it becomes 50-50. But if it's, that's not, that's not how it is when it's functional. I said, the second thing is, don't keep score. If you're keeping score, if you're saying, I'm not going to do this for her because she hasn't done that for me. Well, what about this from her? I don't, you know, if the reason that you're not doing something is because you're keeping a scorecard that says she owes you, that marriage is, is over right mm-hmm. now. Don't keep score. And the third thing is you are always on her side. You always choose her side. If she comes home and the world is against her and she unburdens herself with how just everything has been dreadful all that day. Even if you think you see some easy glaring mistake that you could correct with your wise counsel, you keep your mouth shut. You choose her side and you express, you express comfort and you make sure that I'm like, yeah, well, you know, what can we do here? Let me, can I help? What? It's, it's a, you don't ever make her feel like it's that you're against her also. Because she's going to feel like the rest of the world is against her sometimes. And don't you make her feel like you're against her also. She knows that you are always in her corner. And um, you do those three things, and it'll probably turn out okay. So, anyway. <laughs> that's yeah. and that does, by the way, always being on your side doesn't mean that you condone everything, but you're doing it in a way. Like, there's the times where you talk about Tracy going, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, no, yeah, because you know she loves you enough to to share yes. a thought with you that she thinks is wise, yeah. but she does it in a place where you know that she wants the best for you. But those things are always about keeping score. Those things are always done in the context of Mark is about to do something dumb, <laughs> and so Tracy makes the noise, ah, and Mark goes, "Okay, what am I doing?" Because I trust her. I trust her wisdom. I know that she that she's got something helpful for mm-hmm. me. It's not when she comes home and tells me about how terrible things were at work or with a client or with some social interaction or something that happened. I don't ever look and say, well, you know, they had, I mean, they did, they did have a point. No, (laughs) no, no, you never do that. So anyway, that's all the marriage advice you're going to get out of me today. So the next (laughs) segment here is Jesus with the little children. Beginning in verse 13, it says, And they were bringing the children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Um, so this verse is, you know, you hear that faith of a child thing all the time. You know, unless you come with the faith of a child, unless you receive it as a child. Um, and so it caused me to say, okay, well, what is the faith of a child? How does a child come in faith? And I think that the first thing is when a child comes to a parent or an authority figure with a need, a, something that they need, a problem they have, that's all they have. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't, they haven't worked up a plan for dealing with it on their own and they're going to start pitching them on parts of the idea. It's not like they're going to come and ask for help. They're coming with their problem and mm-hmm. nothing else. It's like when, when we come to Jesus for salvation, the only thing that we bring to that encounter is the sin that made it necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do not bring a list of all the things we've already done expecting Jesus to go pretty good. Here's what one or two more things. Here they are. Knock it out of the park. The second thing is, I think that children come with a belief that the person they're coming to, parent, authority figure, whomever, is somebody both who has the ability to fulfill and meet their need and somebody who will fulfill and meet their need. They have that confidence, that trust in that parent or in that authority figure. And if you say, Mark, what's the faith of a child? I'm like, the faith of a child is one that doesn't ask for help. He wants to, they, they want to unburden. They want to, they want somebody to take the burden from them. And they come in full with no doubt at all, with in full assurance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think of when I think of faith of a child. How about you? Yeah, I totally agree uh, with all of that. And there's there's a sense they're not apologetic for it. Like there's there's no sh- a kid doesn't come in and say, "Hey, Dad, I, I you know I'm really embarrassed about this, but I, but I need your help getting the Cheerios off the top shelf." You know, like <laughs> they they don't come saying, "You know, I've failed and I really don't." You know, I I know I'm not entitled to. You know, it's like they come and it's they totally recognize their need and they're they're more than happy to recognize their need. There's a humility in that, an yeah. expectation in that, like you're talking about. And what he's saying is so many people fail to recognize their need of a salvation because it means recognizing your need. You come and you say, no, 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 I got this. I'm, I'm going to prove myself good enough. I, I don't need a savior. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I obey the commandments. I do all this stuff. And so it keeps you from asking, like, I need help because I can't do this on my own. Kids have no qualms about that. I've, I've, I don't have my children coming to me saying, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I haven't learned how to tie my shoe, and I, I know I hate to bother you, but like they just, hey, I need I tie my shoe. <laughs> it's, they, they're totally fine. They right. understand their need. They yeah. totally do. It doesn't, it doesn't keep them away by shame. There's a, there's kind of an innocent humility mm-hmm. to that. They haven't learned to be proud in yeah. that sense yet. Well, I think that's why Mark puts this story of the children right before the story of the rich young man. Mm-hmm. In verse 17, it says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That story, in that story, each of those three things that I, or each of those things we talked about, is is turned around. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, the first thing he does is he calls him good teacher. And when we talked about this before in the parables, um, you pointed out that a rabbi back then, if you called a rabbi good teacher, the rabbi would go, oh, no, 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 no. No one is good but God alone, right? Correct. Yeah, you did not call a rabbi good. Yeah. It was kind of kind of a rule. <clears throat> so this was a situation where he was – the way I look at it is the rich young man was sort of hedging his bet here, Sam. He was coming to him, and he was calling him good teacher. Is Jesus going to wave that off? You know, is he, is he going to disavow it? Or is he going to embrace it and say, yes, I am God? It's his way of, you know, he's he thinks maybe this guy is, maybe it's God, maybe it's the Messiah, but I'm not sure. Let me ask him this question in this way and see how he answers, and that will answer my question. Um, I think that's interesting because mm-hmm. Jesus' answer is, he says just this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So it's like, okay, he's saying to the man, if you think I am a good teacher, then you also think that I'm God. It's like he was asking, he was basically asking the guy, take that step, you know, make that step to me. Um, Yeah, I think what the guy also, what he might have been doing is it's like he's heard the stories. He comes up and kneels before Jesus, which tells you something about the posture of what he thinks of Jesus. Humility. And yeah. it's like he doesn't want to just say, you know, you're you're I, I recognize you're more than a rabbi. You know, maybe you're a prophet. You know, he's not willing to to ascribe deity to him. So he you know, it's like he's almost giving him a promotion, wondering, is this enough for you? You know, is it, are you a good teacher? You know, maybe maybe you're better than a rabbi. And Jesus calls him on it. It's like, no no no. There's only one who's good. Are you willing to accept the fact that I'm God, you know? Would you? Am I just a rabbi, or am I God? Because there's no option in between. I'm giving you. <laughs> you know. So there's some doubt in his approach. He wants to. He wants Jesus to kind of tip his hat and say, "Yeah, this is who I am." Um, you know, when he, when Jesus gives the, he says, you know, gives the commandments. You know, don't murder and commit adultery and all that stuff. And the, the the rich young ruler says, "Oh, I've kept all these from my youth." I'm 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 thinking that the disciples are like, "Oh, here comes the Sermon on the Mount bit." <laughs> he's gonna <laughs> he's, he's gonna lay the whole you know you, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery, and if you've felt anger in your heart, you you've murdered. And Jesus doesn't, even though that's true, and that's all part of the law that Jesus is taught about. Jesus goes after him in the one area of his heart where he knows he's vulnerable. Um, which is, you know, you're really in love with your money. That's where you get your identity. It's where you find 
your significance in this world, and you value it more than you value what God can offer you. Yeah. Um, and it's like he does. You know, all of Mark, he's talking about how the the sin of man, the wickedness of man, the, the shortcomings of man, they all stem from the heart. And he's just brilliant, man. He knows this guy. He sees him coming. He loves him to pieces. But he recognized that, that this is what's coming out of his heart that makes him seeking out somebody to help him in the first place. Right. You know, if, if he felt totally fulfilled and happy, he's not going to be seeking out the good teacher to ask him how he can improve his life. Right. You know, but he feels, you get a sense this guy feels a desperation. He doesn't know what's wrong with him, and Jesus diagnoses it right here. Yeah. And my hope is that this guy walks away going, man, I really do have this unhealthy relationship with money, mm-hmm. you know? And I hope to see this guy in heaven. Well, but who knows? Who knows? But what we do know is that when Jesus starts to list out the commandments to him, and this guy is, he's, you can just see he's eager. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. It's like the guy's thinking, this is awesome. All the things I've been doing, that's my part. Now tell me what else I need, and you can do your part. And it's this thing of <laughs> he's, he's coming to seek help. He's coming to be a part of the process. He's coming to get part of the credit. You know, he's coming to Jesus saying, mm-hmm. I've done this. Now what do you need to add to it? What more do I have to do? Um, and I, I think right there he's showing that he's not coming just with his need. He's coming with his need and a list of things that he's done that he thinks has ameliorated that need. And and this is the the one thing, and we talked about this in, in the parables episode, but I because we just so often want to say, you know, when Jesus says one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What he's, what Jesus is not doing is he's saying, hey, if you want to know how to get to heaven, you got to sell everything you have. That's not the purpose of why he says that. The key of how you get to heaven is when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, follow me. That is the key of how you get to heaven. But what is preventing this guy from following Jesus is he's got so much stuff. He's got all this wealth, and he's got all this treasure, and that's what he serves. And so long as he has that in his life, he'll never follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, you want to know how you're going to get to heaven? The answer is, follow me. But I recognize you're unwilling to do that so long as you have all this wealth. So get rid of it. Give it away. Give it to the poor. And then when you get rid of your real God, you'll, your God, you'll grab hold of the real God, mm-hmm. which is me. Follow me. And Jesus also then unmasks the unfortunate truth, which is this man's wealth and possessions meant just as much to him as eternal life did. It's like he, Jesus is asking him to make a decision, make a choice. What means more to you? You know, do you do you want to follow me or do you want this stuff? And he's like, I can't choose. I want them both. And it is the exact mirror image of that childlike faith the child who comes only with the need the child who comes believing without doubting that this is someone that can meet that need who comes believing that he will meet that need the rich young ruler had one foot in heaven and one foot in on earth in this whole conversation like he's he wants to make sure that 
it's it's fifty fifty. Or maybe you know, Jesus, God, you've done a lot. I'll give you, I'll give you sixty. God, maybe seventy percent. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to be a part of the mix, and he still wanted to value the things of this world, and you know, that a, that was the impediment. You know, it's interesting. Your your counsel to Scott Carson on marriage. You know. The whole divorce thing comes up because they're not <laughs> these men are not interested in a marriage that's 100 100. You know, they want to know the bare minimums. They want to know, you know, what what is what am I absolutely required to do because right. I don't want to go beyond that. And here, this guy has the same heart. You know, Jesus is 100 in for for the rich young ruler. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die for you. But rich young ruler, like you said, is like eh, maybe maybe fifty, sixty, seventy, right? And God wants one hundred, one hundred. You know, He wants you to to set aside all the fake gods and be all in, even if you do it imperfectly. Like your heart wants to yield entirely to Him, yeah. you know, and and you're surrendered. I think that's I think that's interesting that in all through this section you have people who are trying to hedge. Like, what's the bare minimum that I'm required to do? Is kind of the attitude. Yeah. What, what can I get away with? Yeah, exactly. So verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So again, we have one of these things where, you know, Jesus talks about the impediment that wealth and possessions and power can be to the one that wants to come and follow him. These are hard things to give up, but part of following Jesus is saying, everything I have is secondary to you. Hmm. And if you're going to, he's not telling you that you have to get rid of it all. I mean, he may. If Jesus shows up in your bedroom one night and says, Sam, you got to get rid of everything, including the pool, um, then then that's what you (laughs) do. You know, um, happily, <laughs> but but he doesn't do that. Um, instead, you know, he he tells us to recognize that that our possessions, the things that we have, are what he has given us to serve him and to carry out the mission. And if we look at it that way, and that's how we use it, hmm. he doesn't mind if we spend some of it on groceries is what I'm getting at. You know, it's interesting. I'm chasing a thought that just popped into my brain. This is dangerous territory. This is dangerous. This is a <laughs> but, fresh Samism. That's dangerous. This is a fresh Samism. But I think there's something here. You know, when he taught earlier and he talked about marriage, what does he say? You know, a man shall leave his father and mother 
everything that he's known, everything that gives him comfort, all of his source of provision, and he shall do what? He shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so when he's calling people into the institution of marriage, what what's the pattern of love there? It's you're leaving everything to grab hold of the one you love, and you're totally committed to them, and you've left everything else behind. And then he's looking at the rich young ruler, you know, and, and the crowd in the aftermath. And Peter's like, we left everything. And he's like, yep. If you've left brothers and sisters, mother or father, just like you know, you're called into this new marriage and you're leaving your former life behind to grab hold of your bride, and it's all about that going forward. That's where your heart and your commitment is, forsaking all others. And what Jesus is saying is, and I want the same from you for me. You know, you leave behind all of these things that are your source of security and comfort and everything else for the sake of my gospel, and I promise you, you'll receive a hundredfold now and this time and and into the future. And I think that's fascinating. In both of those cases, that's where he goes. You you have – for that kind of love, for the love of a marriage and for your love expressed toward your Savior, he calls you to leave everything and be willing to grab hold of – your husband or wife or him because that's a special kind of love mm-hmm. even if it requires you to to forsake all else yeah it's interesting well, and I you know and it it's also an interesting thing because when he promises them that you know the hundredfold will, who will not receive a hundredfold um, you know that's something that's often misapplied in the area of giving it's, they take yeah. that hundredfold blessing idea out there and say, if you sow a seed, you know, you'll get the hundredfold blessing. So give us a dollar, you get a hundred dollars back, or a hundred dollars, you get a thousand dollars back. That's what God's going to do for you. And, and in here, that hundredfold comes when somebody gives up everything. Mm-hmm. Not sows some seed, not mails a dollar in an envelope, <laughs> gives up everything to follow him. Mm-hmm. And it's for the sake, for his sake, right. and for the gospel, not so that you can be enriched. I mean, he makes that very clear. When you get married, your heart is for your bride or for your husband. You do things for their sake, and it's it requires you to be humbled and to be other-minded, and the gospel is the same. You do it for his sake in the gospel, not for self. As hard as that is and as imperfectly as we do it, that's where it's most beautiful. Yep. And then verse 31, I love how it closes out, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think that Jesus is saying there are some surprises coming in heaven, guys. There are some surprises. You're going to see people that were up front all the time, and you thought, man, when we get to heaven, that guy is going to have some extra cloak to wear or crown (laughs) on his head or something like that. And what you're going to find out is the guy that mops the floors and does the carpets and and puts out food for Sunday morning and helps keep the property up and has served for 50 years without being recognized, without asking for anything, has, you know, taken care of people when they're sick and taken them food when they were, when they were hungry. Those people that you've never even noticed are going to be first. Um, I just think Jesus is saying there's going to be some surprises in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, now we come to Jesus once again confusing his disciples. Um, 
This is where he's going to foretell his death a third time. Verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Um, let's just identify the players here, if we might. Um, obviously, we have the disciples. That's who the, and they were amazed. That was his disciples. And those who followed were afraid. Um, I was suggesting in study notes this week that those were probably pilgrims that were on their way to Jerusalem for the feast. Uh, cause there was lots of people heading to Jerusalem right then. Uh, so it was probably people that were just kind of, had sort of fallen in with Jesus and his group because Jesus tended to draw crowds. So now the interesting thing is... What do you think they're afraid of? Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, The only way this makes sense to me is, you know how sometimes word order and and sequence of things gets a little flipped around in Greek? Mm -hmm. And my theory is that what they were amazed and fearful of was what he was talking about. It makes it when we read it through in the English, it makes it sound like these you know these people were amazed and these other people were afraid, and then he started talking. And I'm gonna suggest that again, the only way this makes sense to me is he was talking about this, and you had two responses to it. The disciples are amazed, and the followers are afraid. What are they afraid of? I think that they're afraid of the fact that this guy sounds like, He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem and start some trouble. <laughs> that that he's going to be, you know, delivered to the chief priests and condemned to death and you know mocked and spit on and flogged and kill him. And those followers are thinking, "Hey, we're coming for a feast, man. We don't want any trouble." You know, as soon as you guys, as soon as we get inside the door, everybody make a break for it. Nobody be around this guy when the when the fireworks go off. <laughs> um, so yeah. that's that's what I think they were afraid of. The way, the way that I read this is, you know, Jesus is building up this kind of caravan as they're coming down to celebrate the Passover. And I think they know that he's about, you know, and, and the North, you know, the religious leaders and the elders and the chief priests and members of the Sanhedrin have to travel up there and they, they inspect Jesus and he causes a lot of trouble and they want to kill him up there. But now he's walking into the hornet's nest. And they know he's walking into the hornet's nest, and things have intensified, and his opposition hates him more than ever, and they're afraid of what he's walking into. And Jesus is, you know, pulls the twelve again and starts telling him, they're right. <laughs> you know? They're all going to absolutely condemn me to death. It's going to happen. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. But. After three days, I'll rise. Um, that's the way I read that. So then what were they amazed at? If he, if he said that to them after they were already amazed, what was it that amazed them? He's probably doing some miracles. I don't know. <laughs> Just his presence. <laughs> okay. I'm not- well, whether it's a situation where word order gets flipped around again because of strange Greek things that I don't understand, or whether <laughs> Sam is right and Jesus had been making pigeons. 
Um, I don't. Well, usually, I, just to be fair, the Greek usually gets changed around. Like word order doesn't make sense, but it's usually all within one sentence. That's correct. Not sentences around in that, a paragraph. That is, that is correct. That is correct. I recognize that. Um, I realized I was reading into it a bit, um, but I just didn't see what they would be amazed about and the other people afraid about other than this speech. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. You know, there's always going to be a Markism, one a week. That's the guarantee. <laughs> so, um, and then after that, after this moment of amazement and fear, James and John don't make it any better. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a bold request. <laughs> That's really, really bold. Jesus, um, Son of God, creator of the universe, master of heaven and earth, we want you to do anything we ask you. Give us a blank check. You know, and, the, and the timing of the statement, like where they do this. You know, Jesus has just said, hey, you know, um, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and I'm about to face, you know, the most harrowing thing that anybody in the history of humanity has ever gone through. I'm about to be tortured and killed and all this stuff. And they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, we want you to do something for us. <laughs> it's like, dude, like, did you hear what he just said? You know, and, and they're not concerned about what he's, the cost that he's about to endure. They're only concerned for his advance, for their advancement. Right. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to lay myself down to an extreme degree and they're like, okay, well, can you lift us up? <laughs> yeah. That's, it's pretty wild. That's super bold. Yeah. And Jesus comes back to them and says, he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Seems like a reasonable question. <laughs> and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. I'm going to say I think that that right there shows that despite him just having talked about the suffering, mm -hmm. death, and resurrection, they still didn't understand it. They totally. were expecting that his messianic glory was about to be revealed. The Messiah was coming to Jerusalem at the Passover, and his glory would be revealed. It's just about to happen, guys. Everything's going to turn up roses. Tomorrow's going to be a better day. Jesus, put us up front with you, you know, mm -hmm. on your right hand and your left. Yep, and, and you're exactly right. You know, it's they're expecting this to be a coronation. Jesus is saying, when I get to Jerusalem, all hell's going to break loose. It totally misses them, and they're imagining, when we get to Jerusalem, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you know, it's going to be some grand coronation. And so, you know, just like Joseph had with Pharaoh, where he sat at the right-hand side of Pharaoh, or Daniel had with the Babylonian kings, where he was elevated to the right hand, like that's what we want. Uh, that's what we want you to do for us. We want to sit at your right and your left hand side, so that we're exalted above everyone else, and that we have authority in the kingdom because we know you're about to go through your coronation. And they totally miss what Jesus just said. Yeah, hundred percent. Verse thirty-eight. Jesus said to them, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?" And they said to him, we are able, which I think, again, shows that they're thinking this is going to be glory. 
Jesus, you're about to be coronated. Of course we can drink that cup. Hey, we're with you, man. You know, it's like you want to be baptized as in as the Messiah. We'll join you in that pool. But then I think if I can interject something there, I think that it doesn't say it, but I'm going to guess that Jesus's face fell a little bit because he wasn't happy about telling them this. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When Jesus gives them that statement, the cup that I drink, you will drink, the baptism, you will be baptized, he's predicting what's going to happen to them as they go out and take his message to the world. Mm-hmm. It's not going to end well for them. Yeah, they're they're going to have to walk that road of suffering. And, yep. you know, when Jesus talks about this cup, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? They should have recognized this from the Old Testament. Like, all through the prophets, there's talk about how God has a cup of wrath that is waiting to be poured out for the sins of mankind. Like, you, you think of Isaiah 51 where he says, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Every time you find this cup through the prophets, it's the cup of God's wrath. And he's like, Do, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? And then he says, can you be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized? Now, he's already been baptized but elsewhere, I think in Luke's gospel, he says, I still have a baptism to undergo, and he hints at that here. And baptism, originally, like the whole point of it, when when he does it originally with John, the idea is it's a picture of death and resurrection. You are, you are going beneath the waters, which is symbolic of death, and you're emerging again to new life, right? And so, can, can you take the suffering that I'm going to suffer? Can you experience the kind of gruesome death with which, and baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, yeah. And he's like, okay, you know what? You are going to drink that kind of persecution. Not the wrath of God, but you're going to experience the wrath of men and you are going to to suffer death, the kind of of martyr's death that I am about to suffer. Um, And they do. Um, It's... You know, this is a fate that both of them will will experience. Yeah. Verse forty one, and when all the other guys <laughs> heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I can well imagine. <laughs> uh, verse forty two, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them." And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, you know, Jesus once again explaining that the way that you achieve greatness in the kingdom of God is through humble service, humbly submitting yourself to the will of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he this, uh, this where he says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, he's basically saying, he's saying, I'm not ex- exempt from that either. 
he sets this example for us that's really stunning. Um, you know, they, they've done demographic studies of how the church began to spread in the early church, and and one of the things that they have found is it spread like wildfire among women. It spread like wildfire among slaves. It spread like wildfire among the poor. It spread like wildfire through Gentile territories. But the people that were the slowest to come uh, – Augustine writes about this, by the way – the people that were the slowest to come were those who had honor and power and wealth and status. And the reason, like, nobody had ever seen anything like this in the history of the world. Every time a god showed up in the world, basically humanity was reduced to servitude. You know, you existed for the glory of Caesar. You were his peons. You, you existed for the glory of Pharaoh. You existed for the glory of Zeus or whatever god had ever emerged in the history of mankind. Humanity was to be seen as slaves under his feet. And here you see God coming in the flesh, and what does he say? I came not to be served. And it's like you hear every record player ever go, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's so absolutely absurd that the God who created all things, that, that holds all power, he holds all the cards, he doesn't need us. In fact, the only thing that we often bring him in our own deeds is sadness and disappointment, the way that we tear the world down and everything else. And he comes, and he humbles himself, and he goes underneath us to lift us up. He serves. He becomes the slave to where in the first century world, slaves who were seen as you know subhuman essentially say, wait a minute, God became a slave? I can relate to him? He, he became poor? He poured himself out? He, he was willing to set it all aside out of love to give his own life for me? Like, it, it was revolutionary to see a God with this kind of love for humanity. Like, it it was, it would have been almost blasphemous to the traditional Jews to imagine God saying such a, such a thing, and it would have been utterly absurd to the Greeks and the Romans. And yet, it was novel. It was brand new. You know, the world had never seen such a thing. Mm-hmm. And then he says, to us, all of his people – as much as this surprises the world, as much as this is absolutely countercultural, revolutionary, you should be like this to everyone else. Yeah. You should serve those that, you know what, culturally speaking, you've got a leg up on. You should be their slave. You should serve them. You should lower yourself to lift them up. You should give your life to lift others up. And that's the theme that you're finding through this passage. Yeah, okay, men, culturally, you're above women. You could send them away out of your hardness of heart. But what would God call you to do? You know, rich young ruler, give away your stuff. Like, it's it's all calling us to empty ourselves and to love others sacrificially, and that's the beauty of the gospel. And Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't done to a degree far greater than what he calls us to do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So verse 46, <clears throat> we come to the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Um, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. A couple of interesting things about this is, Mm -hmm. one of the first things is, I can't think of another healing of a blind man or a sick person where they're identified. Can you? No, now that you mention it. Yeah, this is the only one that I could find. Um, huh. And it's I, it may be only Mark that records the name. But I almost wonder whether Bartimaeus was like well-known enough around that people were like, he healed Bartimaeus? Well, well I know where Bartimaeus will be this afternoon. I'm going to go find out. Like, it's almost like, you want to check it out? Let me tell you. You know, he healed somebody that you knew, that kind of thing. Yeah. Jericho, by the way, was a place where when people would make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, you know, there was a mountain pass, and you, you almost had to go through Jericho because it was kind of like a choke point on this mountainous path to get to Jerusalem. And so all the pilgrims from the north all the pilgrims that are coming from the east, from the lands of Babylon, are coming through Jericho. They've passed through this. They've come outside those walls, and they've all seen Bartimaeus, right? <laughs> yep. And so, they're, like you're saying, I, that's a really good point. I wonder if he's saying, hey, Bartimaeus, go check it out. You've all met him. You've yep. walked right by him on your way to Passover. Um, that's interesting. And then Bartimaeus cries out, calling him Jesus, son of David. Now, Bartimaeus calls him son of David twice here as he's calling out to him. That is obviously a messianic and divine ruler reference, mm-hmm. um, and it's used only twice in the Gospel of Mark, once by Bartimaeus and once by Jesus concerning himself. So for him to call out son of David was first unusual. No one else was calling him that, that Mark recorded anyway. Um, and it also was, it was an affirmation. You know, he was saying to Jesus, I know who you are. Son of David, you're the ruler that was promised. You know, you are the one that God told us about so many years ago. Um, I think that it was, I think it was his cry of faith. Mm. Um, and then I love this fact, Sam. The crowd, Bartimaeus had been saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's like, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, <laughs> would you just shut up? These people are going to think we're crazy. Bartimaeus, no! And then when Jesus stops and notices him and says, call him, all of a sudden the whole crowd becomes Team Bartimaeus. They're like, Bartimaeus! Because, and, I, and here's why this Markism exists. It says that he throws off his cloak, sprang up, and came to Jesus. How is a blind man going to do that if the crowd isn't steering him? Huh. That's cool. And so... He cried, you know, when Jesus said, call me, they said, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Suddenly, it's not Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. It's like, (laughs) Bartimaeus, he's one of us. Yeah, you know, it's like that kind of thing. 
<laughs> That's awesome. It's just a you know, very interesting is, healing. This is the second time he's done that, which just goes to show you, like, you know, remember when we were talking about how Jesus was so exhausted and, you know, they hadn't eaten and he just keeps serving people. Right. Even though they're, you know, at the point of exhaustion, but he won't turn the people away. And then earlier in this very same chapter, you know, you have, you know, the disciples saying, get these children away from him. Get them, get them away, get them away. And Jesus is like, stop sending people away from me. Bring the children to me. Like, don't, don't send them away. And here you have the crowd saying, shut up, Bartimaeus. And what do they do? They, they look at the people who were lowly because I want you to get this. This reflected the culture at the time. Children, go away. You're not worthy of Jesus. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. It's the, it's the lowly that are drawn to me. Bring them. I want the lowly. This blind guy. Ah, oh, shut up. You're a blind guy. You know, you, Jesus doesn't have time for you. And he stops the whole caravan and says, no, no, no. That's exactly who I want to see. Call him and bring him to me. And it's just this beautiful passion and heart that Jesus has to where, you know, the religious people, all these people on the caravan are like, no, 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 not the children, not Bartimaeus. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Bring them to me. Stop telling them that they're not worthy of my presence. Call them. I want them. And, you know, I think we'd do a (laughs) – we'd be – We'd be well served to remember that, that what culture says, these are the people who aren't worthy of, of faith. These are people who aren't worthy of Christ. Well, take a note from Jesus. That's exactly who he once called to him. Yeah. The, the flip-flop of the audience is like something from a Monty Python movie. It really is. <laughs> that's good. That's a good note. It's I like, love getting into the imagination and envisioning this stuff because that's exactly what it's like. Oh, sure. I, it's, you know. Honestly, it's it's why I find scripture interesting, is that I really try to imagine myself in that moment. Um, there's because otherwise there can be a, a whole lot of passages that are awfully dull. Um, but I'm telling you, if you really start to to think about you know who's talking to whom, why, what's the point, what if I were the person being talked to, what if I were there, what if. What if this was my cultural context? Mm-hmm. Um, scripture starts to take on a much more relevant feeling. So, Yeah, really does. And my last thought as I was reading through this is, uh, verse 52, um, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And I like that, again, because the man was healed because he had great faith. Jesus mm-hmm. healed him, but the man's faith was that trigger that allowed Jesus to do that miracle. And once again, we see that there is something about the faith of the individual coming to Jesus for healing that prompts him, that moves his heart, that he then, that he then takes on and heals. And he says to the guy, not go see the priest, make an offering, go to the temple, do whatever. He says, go your way. Like, take the night off. Bartimaeus, go anywhere you want. I don't, I'm just healing you because you've got great faith, my son. Do what you want. Have a good life. But what does Bartimaeus do? Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him, who? Jesus, on the way. Bartimaeus was told he could go anywhere. He'd just been given his sight back. And what does he want to do? I want to join Jesus on his way. Hmm. His way became my way. I am going my way. It's your way. That's the great pattern of salvation. You know, God comes 
and gives you this gift that you know your faith triggers and when he gives you his grace it changes you to want to follow him you know you you don't follow him and then get healed you get healed and then you follow him you know the the way that this is laid out that's a really good that's a really good find i love that that's cool you know some of these i do just for myself but i'll share them on the podcast <laughs> they're, they're that's rich man that's yeah. rich I and think the other th- I think this whole chapter was rich, man. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff, man. It just it really is. It's the mission of Jesus, and what you find behind all of these is, you know, we have such a kind servant Savior who's come to empty himself out to give himself. He doesn't withhold anything from his pursuit of his relationship with us. And at at the heart of each and every one of these stories is kind of that echo. It's like, you know, here you have a Savior who's given everything for you. And what he's calling is in the mission and return to him and our marriages and our devotional life. Like, he wants everything from us. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It's a blessed life. Um, you know, Bartimaeus, I've, I've thought about this story before, and there's, there's a strange thing because it makes a big deal about the volume. And here you have Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and this is coming to the end of his life. You know, he's, he's going to be in Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified within a week. And he shows up on the outskirts of Jerusalem where the walls would have been. And I love this, and I don't, I don't know that this is intentional. This is a Samism. It might be a stretch, but I like it. But you have this man who's outside the walls of Jericho, and he's shouting praises. You know, He's honoring Jesus as the son of David. And what does everybody say? Quiet, quiet, stop shouting, stop shouting. And what does he do? He shouts all the more. And so here you have somebody who's outside the walls of Jericho who is shouting and growing louder and louder and louder. And there's part of me that wonders if Jesus in his, you know, as God, if there's not some memory that comes up and says, I remember the last time my people shouted for deliverance outside the walls of Jericho. And it makes a big deal of his, the volume, the shouting, getting mm-hmm. louder and louder. And Jesus stops and says, I'm going to bring redemption to the shouts outside of Jericho one more time. Mm. And he goes and, and heals them because he is mm. praising and begging for God to intervene and bring victory outside the walls of Jericho. And I think there's something to that, the fact that he just gets louder, shouting, yeah. shouting. And eventually, you know, in some sense, his walls come tumbling down and yeah. God delivers them. And he's on his way to inaugurate the kingdom of God yeah. in Jerusalem which is exactly what Jericho marked for Joshua. It's fascinating to, to think about anyway. That's a, uh, that's a good look-back connection. I think that's, uh, I think that's appropriate. Um, I also think that you know, we have to recognize what this was like for Jesus or must have been like for Jesus. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him, exactly what was going to happen to him. He'd been telling people what was going to happen to him. Every single step he took was bringing him closer to the most difficult thing any of us can ever imagine. Jesus wasn't going to turn away from it. That, that had already been decided. So every step, man, let me tell you something. You know, I've been going through some medical stuff, no secret, and I get sent in for all kinds of tests. I don't want these tests. I want to be home in my chair watching YouTube. Um, so when I'm going in, it's like every step is heavier, harder, longer than the step before. Mm -hmm. 
It's like you are walking to somewhere you don't want to be to do something you don't want to do and you hate it. And that's for a medical test. Hmm. Jesus was walking to suffer and to die on the cross. I mean, it's like that had to be the hardest steps that he was taking. And I think that when Bartimaeus called out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, that it was it was a moment where Jesus could stop for just a second and go, yeah, yep, that's why I'm doing this. Hmm. I remember. Um, I, I just, I feel like it was a bit of solace to Jesus at that moment to do this healing because he knew that he was going to heal something bigger than all diseases, bigger than everything that was wrong in the world. He was going to heal the divide between God and man. He was going to reconcile us to God and to each other by his death on the cross that paid for sin. And I just think that, I don't know, I think that at that moment it had to be like a cool breeze hit Jesus. He's like, yeah, I know why I'm here. Bring him over, you know. Hmm. Anyway, again, just me entering into the moment, but I just, I ha- I'm just imagining what Jesus was carrying with him on that walk, you yeah. know, just imagining it. You know, all these things that he goes through. I mean, I think you're right. Like when he looks at Bartimaeus, you know, he loves him. This this is the reason why he came in. It was not just for Bartimaeus, but it was for Mark and Sam and all the people who are listening to the podcast. And a lot of times we can kind of reduce the, the gospel as though he's just on some mechanical mission carrying out, you know, this mission. But behind it all, you know, he has this this – deep love for the Father and wanting to glorify his Father in all he does. And with one hand, he's holding on to that. And with the other hand, he's glorifying the Father by reaching down and grabbing all these people that are desperately broken and just imagining how much he loves them. You know, he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And it's remarkable that our God calls us a friend and he calls us a bride and you just see his heart bleeding through saying man i want you to know how much i love you and here it is i will withhold nothing as i take these heavy steps man i will withhold nothing from you even even my life itself and he does that for bartimaeus he does that for mark and sam he does that for anybody who's willing to grab hold of him with a mustard seed of faith. And he's just unbelievably good. Well, that's a good word. And it's what we're going to have to end on because the clock on the wall says, we've been talking for an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) It's Mark's fault. There's too many stories in every chapter. Actually, it's... It's our church's fault for making us go through an an entire chapter each week. It's impossible to do in an hour. It really is. (laughs) So... Folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. It's been profitable for you. Uh, if you'd like to correspond with Samurai, you can send email to outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app available for either Apple or Android devices. 
Sam and I will return next week with another in our series from the Gospel of Mark, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Oh,